Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. So obviously we have a massive inflation problem and clearly in retrospect, the Fed you know, committed a policy error by staying this loose this long, right? The Fed is taking the punch bowl away and then some. And also the Fed doesn't have the room to execute on that Fed put. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by repeat guest and I think we can officially call you the best dressed man in both macro and crypto, Urian Timur of Fidelity. Welcome to the show, Uh, Urian. Good morning. Nice to see you. All right. We've got a lot to cover here. Uh, We kind of had this whole plan uh, of what we wanted to talk about, but we're talking at an interesting time. This is Monday, uh, June uh, 13th, and basically everything is breaking. (laughs) And it seems a little funny not to comment on what's going on specifically in crypto. I want to talk about uh, Celsius uh, and kind of some of the struggles that's going on there. But it seems like there are a lot of things that are kind of falling out of whack as well. So Yaren, as a guy who's lived through many different market cycles, let's say periods of stress and panic, I mean, Talk, walk us through how you're kind of viewing the situation with, with Celsius. If you get, just give us an overview of it and, and how to, you're, you're kind of digesting all this information in real time. It's, it's, not, a, uh, um, it's not an organization that I uh, watch closely. You know, as you know, I went down the crypto, uh, the Bitcoin rabbit hole about a year and a half ago, and I kind mm-hmm. of added Ethereum to it. And then the whole DeFi staking thing is something that I've obviously watched with with great interest. Um, uh, but you know, when it comes to Terra, Luna, and and these other players, uh, you know, I, I I don't have any inside uh, knowledge. But I think what what it shows us is that that whole staking part. Um, um, is is starting to un- unravel or is unraveling, um, and it's a way to to suck leverage out of the out of the system, right? I mean, if you think about it, you know, staking is is basically adding leverage. You know, as as we heard someone uh, accurately describe it, you know, you put money in a box and then you take more money out of a box, and I think that box is kind of uh, you know being being tossed around in, in in the parking lot at this point. So I think you know the bad news is that you know. When when there is stress in the system, whether it's in tradfi or crypto, uh, correlations go to one. Uh, we've seen that many many times. We've seen that, we see that in every cycle, um, mm-hmm. and in um, in crypto, it appears to be you know happening there as well. Uh, you know the the silver lining is that at the end of the day. There will be no leverage in the system. It'll just be, um, it'll just be the hodlers, and you know, whoever is less standing is going to have uh, a really attractive opportunity to kind of, you know, to kind of get involved. But at this point, you know, you're you're catching the falling knife if 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 you do so. So who knows where the bottom is, whether it's here or whether it's down below. But you know, I've done a lot of extensive fundamental modeling on supply and demand for Bitcoin mostly, and. The further we go down below, you know, whatever forty, which I think is kind of the fair value at this point, uh, the more, from my per- personal point of view, the more attractive it's going to be. But it's it's certainly very painful to watch it happen as it hap- as as it's happening. Yeah, I think uh, you know the big story that everyone is really zooming in on here, and and what might be different this time when it comes to specifically crypto is we've never seen one of these kind of cyclical, uh, you know, crypto uh, turndowns in the face of a global macro turned down as well. And, you know, it's it's been so long since there's been a bear market, at least in US equities, uh, that I think many participants have actually forgotten that that is an option. But you know, the setup for macro is pretty ugly right now, right? Um, you kind of started everything off here in this slide deck. We've got, uh, you know, as always, a great uh, chart deck to run through here that Yurian has put together for the show. You kind of started everything off here with the rising cost of capital. Can you walk us through what we're looking at here and why um, this is such an important concept to be paying attention to? So obviously, we have a massive inflation problem. There was a consensus after the last six months of the Fed constantly moving the goalposts towards an ever tighter, faster policy reset. Uh, and clearly, in retrospect, the Fed you know, committed a policy error by staying this loose this long, right? They should have they should have ended QE earlier. I mean, easy for me to say in hindsight. I mean, the Fed, I think, deserves a lot of credit for trying to do the best they can in real time. But in retrospect, 
clearly they were too loose for too long and they should have started to normalize policy. And now they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle in terms of inflation, which means they now have to overshoot uh, to, to the tight side. And when you overshoot in terms of policy tightening, you know, you run the risk that, that you end up breaking something. And, and I think that's becoming uh, a real concern. You know, the, the two-year, the 10-year yield curve is, is at six basis points today. Uh, so it's almost uh, inverted again. It briefly inverted, you know, a few months ago. But the Fed is taking the punch bowl away and then some, and it's doing so rapidly. And I think there was a consensus building um, recently that, you know, the inflation numbers would start to improve, at least on a rate of change basis. So the second derivative would at least start to come down from, you know, eight and a half to, to seven to six to five to four. And that at least for now, the Fed could kind of go to three percent, which was priced in and then just wait and kind of see what, what would happen. Uh, and the CPI report last Friday kind of threw, you know, cold water or, or hot oil, you know, onto that, onto that consensus. And as of this morning, the, the forward curve, if you look at the SOFR curve, has gone from the low threes to the high threes in the span of, yeah, and this chart is one, one, one day old, and we, we can add 30 basis points to that yeah. orange line. Right. Uh, so it's at 3.9% today, um, and that means the Fed has to go even at 75 basis points probably this month, and then a 50, and then another 50. So it needs to get to almost 4% um, in, within the next you know, 9 to 12 months, and that is a reality that obviously reverberates into all assets, right? If we go back to the previous slide you showed, I mean, obviously it infects the bond market immediately because obviously rising rates means lower bond prices. So the two-year yield, I'm looking at my screen here, is at three and a quarter now. It was two and a half just a week ago. I mean, that is a huge reset. Um, mortgage rates, you know, into the mid fives. Um, and so the, it, it affects the bond market. Anyone borrowing money, whether it's a homeowner or a government or a corporate, is immediately affected by this rising terminal rate. Uh, but it also affects other assets, including the stock market, because, you know, when we look at equity valuation, and I use the discounted cash flow model um, as a good way to incorporate both the earning side and the interest rate side, right? Because interest rates matter greatly for equity valuation. You know, the earnings side has not missed a beat. And, and I don't know if that's uh, just investors <laughs> whistling past the graveyard or whether that will change with second quarter earnings season, which will which will start in a few weeks. But so far, the, the EPS number for 2022 and 2023, the expected EPS number, um, is at 10% growth, hasn't budged. Uh, the, the breadth is coming down in terms of numbers of upgrades versus downgrades, but that number has held in. So when you look at the DCF and you put the uh, ca expected cash flows or earnings in the numerator, that number has been solid, but the denominator, which is the cost of capital, has been rising. And, and you know, as treasury yields rise and corporate yields rise and credit spreads widen, and right now the high yield OES is at 453, which is not, not that bad actually historically. Um, but as those two components rise, the cost of capital for equities rises as well. And, and the cost of cap capital is, is defined as the treasury yield, the, the risk-free yield, although many pe people might argue with that with that definition these days, um, and the equity risk premium. Um, and so as the cost of capital rises, the present value of future cash flows falls, which is another way of saying the PE falls. And maybe if we can pull up um, the slide where I compare the two-year yield to the um, to the yes to the PE ratio. Um, so what so a simple model is to look at the two-year yield as a proxy for the Fed cycle. Uh, this this ruled um, the game back in during the 1994. Fed cycle when Alan Greenspan just out of the blue raised rates 300 basis points in increments of 50, even 175. And, you know, nobody knew it was coming. Has kind of that feel to it this time around. Um, so the two-year yield was inversely a driver for the P.E. ratio. And the P.E. ratio back then during the 94 cycle fell 10 points. Um, we see the same thing happening again. So the orange line is the two-year yield on a reverse scale regressed against uh, the PE, just to, to make to make the, the numbers um, relatable. And actually, as of this morning, that number is down to 14.8. So the fair value for how we should value future earnings has gone from about 23 
down to 14.8. And uh, just, and you can see, just in the last few days, you know, we went from like 16 and a half to 14.8. So when you think about why did the stock market fall so hard on Friday and again today, it's because the math has changed. A higher terminal rate for the Fed means a lower fair value for the S&P, and it's an instant repricing, right? So the market's very efficient in pricing in all available information, but that uh, available information is changing by the minute, right? As it always does. So the market is resetting. So, you know, uh, expected earnings for the next 12 months is $232 a share. Uh, you do $232 times 14.8, you get to about 2430 on the S&P. Um, as of right now, we're at 37.75. So the market is derating itself based on this new reality. And from the numbers I just gave you, it doesn't sound like it's done yet. No. Um, so, you know, one of the things I, I, I love you're in, uh, in these slide decks, although these, these charts look very fancy and they're very well put together, is so you have a, a really good way of simplifying things. Um, you know, the, your, I think your focus on, on earnings um, is definitely one that I haven't heard enough people talking about. Um, so when it comes to valuing stocks, right, there are kind of two components to that. There's obviously the valuation that they're getting, and then there's the earnings, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of focus being paid right now. Uh, you know, this, this DCF model that you have, I really like, because, and that probably impacts the, the valuation, right? So as, the, as rates go back up, that, that changes the amount that investors are discounting those future cash flows, and that's influencing how much investors are willing to pay, right? That's the valuation uh, side of things. But what we haven't really talked a whole lot about, or what I haven't heard about a whole lot, is actually earnings, right? And actually, one of the concerning things to me, actually looking at um, some of the numbers that you showed, is that the stock market is still uh, projecting, right, 10% earnings growth next year. But for me, I'm kind of looking at what's going on in the world and thinking, I'm not sure with all this withdrawal of liquidity, with deteriorating economic conditions, why the market is still forecasting 10% growth in earnings. Can you talk a little bit more about that side of the equation, the earnings versus maybe the, the valuation that we've been talking about before? Yes. So, so you're absolutely right. Price is at the intersection of valuation and earnings, right? So there are two moving parts in the stock market. One is what are companies going to earn? And over the long run, price follows earnings. Mm -hmm. But two is how much are investors willing to pay for each dollar of earnings, right? And what we often see is when valuations are high, the market is uh, front-loading more years of future earnings growth than when valuations are low, right? So when valuations are at rock bottom, the market's not rewarding any pot any potential earnings growth because it doesn't believe it's going to be uh, there. Uh, and at very high valuations, it might be pricing in the next five years of earnings growth because investors are so confident that those earnings are going to come through. So, so the PE, by definition, is the price over the earnings. And if the PE goes down, uh, as it does when liquidity tightens, as it is now, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the present value of future earnings goes down. And that's what we're seeing. And we've had a 10, 11 point derating on, um, on valuation on a trailing PE basis already. But that's only as good as the E in the PE, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the E right now is around $205, $210. That's trailing earnings. The expected earnings for the next 12 months is about 232, $235. Next 18 months is around 245 or so. And there has really, those numbers have not budged. Now, under the hood, you can see there are more downgrades than upgrades. The growth rate is certainly slowing. Um, it, you know, it was 50% last year. It's down to about 14%. Now it's on its way, but, you know, in, in the best case scenario to 10% or so over the next year. But I think, you know, the risk is that, especially when we get to second quarter uh, earnings season, that companies are going to start missing more and they're going to say, you know, our, our costs are too high. We're either losing uh, customers or we are, it's, or it's eating into our profit margin. It's going to be one or the, or the other. Um, and the other, and even if that doesn't happen, the risk is that if inflation is so hot, um, and the economy is fully employed, as we know, right? There's uh, employment rates only three and a half percent. Will the Fed have to keep tightening until it breaks something, until it, it actually causes a recession, which certainly wouldn't be the first time that f Fed tightening has led to that. Um, and in that case, the E would become vulnerable, right? If you're going to have a recession, you're very likely going to have an earnings contraction on top of that. And what makes bear markets um, 
really nasty events to have to live through, not just valuation resets, which is what all we've had so far is just a valuation reset. But if you have a true bear market, an earning, a recessionary bear market, you combine both the falling PE and a falling E. And then P, the price, has to do double you know, double the work to keep up with the falling PE as well as the falling denominator in that PE ratio. And that's why you get bear markets of 30, 40 percent. Um, and, and so far, we haven't seen that. We're down, you know, in the low 20s as of this morning, down 22 or 23 probably. Um, but that's all just been valuation. And so the, the risk is that the E is, is going to be uh, the, the next domino. And, and again, I'm looking like a hog every day for signs uh, of whether that foundation is starting to crack. And other than a few very spectacular misses at the company level, um, I really am not seeing a lot of signs. The growth is slowing. The breadth of revisions is certainly um, you know, slowing. But beyond that, the numbers are actually holding in pretty well. Yeah, so here's the, the 2022 um, earnings estimate of uh, this is the aggregated bottom-up estimate that I get from Bloomberg, and it's held in very, very steady. Now, obviously, energy materials uh, are seeing huge revisions upward, but those are fairly, relatively tiny sectors in the market. At least uh, they have been, and they still are, but uh, they'll probably get a, a lot less tiny going into the future. Yeah. Um, just maybe, uh, I mean, walk me through this. Uh, maybe, maybe this is an overly bearish line of thought, but just, um, you know, tell me where I might be wrong here. Right. Lots of focus. We've talked about it on this podcast as well. Um, you know, Zoltan Pozar, his whole Bretton Woods three framework, you know, where he kind of has made this observation that, you know, when it comes to inflation, there's a supply side, right, which is the amount of, uh, you know, production capacity globally. And then there's a demand side. Uh, the Federal Reserve and central banks writ large, don't have control over the supply side, right? They can't print wheat, yeah. they can't impact the price of energy directly, but what they can do and what it seems like they are doing is focusing on the demand side. What they wanna do is they wanna crush demand. So if that's the you know, if that's the explicit goal of the Fed or that's where the Fed sees themselves being able to have an impact on the inflation right now, I mean, what's the, how would that not translate into downward revised earnings, right? Isn't, you know, crushing demand, you know, basically it's explicitly saying the Fed saying, hey, we are going to take down corporate profits or, or earnings, you know, for the for the foreseeable future. That's our policy choice. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing the Fed will probably not use the word crush. Um, <laughs> right. That's what it's trying to do. I think the Fed would like to tweak the demand and yeah. bring it down just enough to take, you know, the, 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 the heat off of the, the CPI. Uh, but that's a very, very delicate, uh, you know, act of threading the needle, um, and the Fed, you know, has blunt instruments, uh, and so right. it's, you know, so, uh, you know, the Fed doesn't often achieve a soft landing. The Greenspan Fed in the aforementioned 1994 cycle did, but inflation never really was a problem in that cycle, uh, either because Greenspan was early enough to to tame it or. Uh, he just saw ghosts that weren't there. Who knows? But uh, but that obviously is not is not the case this time. So the Fed would like to temper demand uh, and um, enough, you know, to to kind of bring the economy back into balance because it's it's certainly uh, beyond capacity at this point. If you look at you know the jobs numbers, you know there's 1.9 opening for every job uh, seeker. And so that's that's the the task that the Fed has, and uh, you know, history is not on on the side of the Fed trying to achieve a soft landing, and certainly not when inflation is is this hot. And you know, you pulled up a chart earlier, the one which showing R star and the Fed cycle running through it. If maybe we can pull that one up, yeah. So even with all of the repricing that's happening now. Um, because R star is likely rising, you know that that those last few data points on that smooth blue line is my own uh, regression model because the Fed for some reason hasn't released our, their version of R star in two years since since the lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh, but based on labor force productivity credit appetite or, or risk appetites, it's very likely that the natural rate of interest or R star is rising. Um, and nominal yields, of course, are rising as the Fed is tightening, but so are so is inflation. So we're, it's kind of this thing where we're constantly behind, the not behind the curve, but we're not getting ahead of the curve in terms of how tight the Fed needs to get 
to get comfortably or uncomfortably, as the case may be, above our star. And you can see in this chart, this goes back about four decades, that the typical Fed cycle uh, is like a pendulum swinging from two to 300 basis points below the natural rate or neutral, you know, our star really is just a, an estimate of what a neutral policy is, uh, to two to 300 basis points above. And you know, we've gone from six, 700 basis points below to uh, still not at, but obviously with what's priced in the bond market, uh, we'll get modestly above it, but we won't get above it uh, in the same, to the same magnitude as we have in the past for a number of years, if then. So, um, so the Fed, with all of the the resetting here of expectations, still may not be doing enough. And you know, and the more they do, as you point out, the higher the risk is that they will do that they will be too successful in, in quelling demand. And then all of a sudden you have a recession. And if you have a recession, you have an earnings contraction. And if you have an earnings contraction, that 14.8 times uh, forward earnings uh, will probably still be 14.8 or something around that. But all of a sudden that earnings number in the denominator goes from 230 to 200. And then you're looking at S&P levels that are a lot lower than where we are today. So that that is that is the great risk. A few weeks ago, that risk was kind of pushed to the back burner because the sense was, you know, inflation is going to moderate. It may not go back to the Fed's target of 2%, but maybe it goes to 4 And at that point, the Fed at least doesn't have to have the urgency of continuously raising rates um, and that the Fed could just go to 3 and which, as you can see on this chart, three would be nominal, of course. This chart shows real real rates. But at three, it would be basically at or slightly above neutral. And that's, that's kind of a do-no-harm policy, right? At that point, the Fed wouldn't go so far that it would break something. But with the, with the CPI print last Friday, that narrative is changing and the market is trying to find its footing um, and trying to maybe start to price in that, that, that potentiality that the E doesn't hold. But at, at this point, all the numbers that I've seen suggest that it is. Um, and I'm looking like in the weeds uh, every day. Yeah. Yaren, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I love this chart so much is I think it visually represents something that market participants sense and are maybe a little bit worried about, right? Which is if you kind of look back uh, at, at these periods of time that you've labeled as restrictive here, which is when, um, you know, interest rates essentially go above that natural rate of interest, the R starred, um, you know, that typically precedes some sort of large, you know, recession or market crash, right? So that was kind of right before 2001, right? When we had the dot-com bubble burst, there was right before uh, 2008, when obviously we had the great financial crisis. Um, and interestingly enough, right, I mean, people actually talked about this, the yield curve actually inverted right before COVID as well, uh, you know, which did, uh, and Harley Bassman asked, did he predict uh, uh, COVID? I, yeah, I don't know. But basically, there's this this pretty well, um, well-worn well pattern historically of when the Fed does tighten, eventually they, they do it to the point where they break something and then they ease. The other pattern that you can see going back in time here is that the Fed typically had much more latitude to get tighter, right? They could go way above that R-starred line before something broke. And now, you know, I, I think the worry and, and maybe why there's a lot of kind of doom and gloom out there is you can see over a period of time where that that blue surface area above the R star where, where the Fed can be more restrictive and, and kind of curb excess in the market is getting less and less and less with time. So I, I think the worry here, and, and maybe if I could ask you your opinion, I, I don't think it's overly bearish to say we're going into a bear market. The worry would be that we're, we're looking at down the barrel of some pre, a pretty nasty macro setup here just between the debt, uh, between kind of this double barrel recession, right, where, you, where you've got the, the, the earnings and the PE falling at the same time. And, you know, we've got inflation and, you know, historically low interest rates. So I, I think folks um, have already kind of made peace uh, with the fact that the market is going lower. The question is going to be how far, how fast? And is this going to be something that feels very, very long, like a, a long sustained kind of bear market? Um, or do you see some sort of recovery? Because it's, it's just hard to see where the Fed can step in having, having so little room, wiggle room, if that makes sense. Um, yes. And also the Fed doesn't have the room for that kind of to execute on that Fed put, right? So, right. so one thing you, you, you just point out to correctly is that economy is more levered to low rates than it has been in the past. And that's why those highs, you know, that chart shows lower highs and lower lows. 
and it would argue that maybe neutral is is the new tight, right? So maybe, maybe hmm. we don't get to the two to three hundred basis points above because the economy can't handle it, right? I mean, it's a highly financialized, levered economy. The households are not so much levered. You know, that was the financial crisis that where, where that happened, where people had equitized their home equity uh, or monetized their home equity, I should say. Uh, but certainly it's the government this time. And of course, the government has an in, infinite ability to fund itself. But mm. corporate leverage is pretty high. Um, so so there, there is a limit um, to how high rates can go before it starts to really impact the economy. Um, but on the other side, you know, the Fed put is kind of out of the money at this point, right? So in the past cycle, like in 2018, when market went down 20%, even during COVID, uh, even in, in previous cycles, um, when the market started to unravel because the Fed was tightening, the Fed could easily pivot because inflation was just not a threat, right? I mean, after over a decade of failing to meet uh, its inflation target to the upside, right? Like it would be below the 2% target. Um, you know, the, the Fed kind of felt or the market fe felt that the Fed had the luxury of just kind of pivoting uh, towards keeping the markets afloat because there was no price to pay for that. At least that was the perception. I think we can all maybe think think differently on that. Uh, but that put has now been taken away because inflation's at 8.6%. And, uh, you know, the, the tips break evens are much, much lower than that, but they are, you know, fairly sticky, but but much lower, around three, three and a half on the five-year, uh, you know, closer to three on the 10-year, the five-year, five-year forward is still only around two and a half. But this notion that if the market goes down 20%, the Fed will just reverse course is not going to happen um, this time around. So, um, so it, it really just depends on how quickly those rising rates will impact the economy. Like I think on the housing front, we're going to see that pretty quick, right? I mean, if you think about home prices are already up 20, 30 plus percent yep. over the last couple of years. On top of that, mortgage rates went from a three handle to a five handle. I saw one estimate somewhere, not my number, but I read it, that the cost of buying a home is up like 60% in the last year through a combination of rising prices and rising mortgage rates. Um, that's going to that's gonna fix, I think, that inflation problem perhaps fairly soon. And that's mm -hmm. happening as new supply is probably going to hit the market in terms of houses in different parts of the, uh, of the country where, where, where real estate development, you know, it, is where, where there's room for that. So maybe the housing side will crack first and maybe that will take some needed steam off the inflation. Then you still have the energy side, of course, oil and gas and you know, there doesn't seem to be any 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 relief insight on that matter. But, you know, as the old saying goes, nothing cures high prices uh, better than high prices. So maybe we're at that point uh, or not at that point, but maybe we'll get to that point as well. And so I, I think if at some point that inflation fever breaks um, and it breaks because the economy breaks, um, at that point, the Fed could pivot fairly quickly back to uh, to an easing scenario, unless we get into some sort of prolonged stagflationary regime. And then, I think the Fed would have a very difficult decision to make because let's say let's say the payroll numbers start becoming negative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like right now, the payroll numbers are strong. Unemployment rates at three and a half. Pretty easy for the Fed to say we got a dual mandate. We're going to favor the inflation mandate this time around because. We're so far from a recession in terms of the employment picture, at least that I'm guessing that's might be what they're saying. But if the employment picture starts to crack and inflation is still uh, a major problem, Fed's going to have to choose, right? It's going to have to choose. And, and my guess is that if inflation at least is down on a rate of change basis, which it should eventually. I mean, it, it, that's just the way the, the base effects work. So let's say we're at four or five percent, you know, a year from now, and the and the employment picture starts to crack. I think at that point the Fed will maybe reluctantly choose uh, to pay more attention to the on, to the employment mandate than the inflation mandate. And then you know you get into all kinds of other questions about well, what does that do to real rates? Um, you know, will the Fed have to start thinking about the Bank of Japan's playbook and start doing yield curve control if the bond market has really continued to unravel. Uh, I don't think those are questions for today, but those are things we should be thinking about because if that ladder were to happen, let's say the 10-year the, the 
which today is at 329, let's say it goes to four, and it really starts to damage things in the economy, including the government's uh, ability to fund itself, which it has, but it might take up a larger chunk of the of the of the of the budget in in Washington. Um, will the Fed at that point go back to the 1940s playbook and say we're going to cap long bond yields at three or or whatever it is, um, and then you would lock in negative rates like you like we did in mm -hmm. the 1940s, um, and then you start thinking about gold and Bitcoin and stores of value commodities. And, you know, it's interesting not to go off on a tangent too much, but, you know, gold, gold if you use the, uh, the, the traditional TIPS model to price gold, which has worked for years and years and years, gold should be at $1,400 an ounce today. It's at $1,829 today. Uh, so something is happening in the gold market, and maybe it's just geopolitics with Russia, uh, but maybe it's uh, gold investors saying, at some point, the Fed's going to have to do some sort of yield curve control and repress long rates um, below the inflation rate, because that's how you get out of debt after all. And at that point, uh, hard assets, stores of value will, will, will command a premium. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. Yeah, a, a lot, a lot, uh, you know, just covered there. And uh, folks, if you if you want some some supplementary information on on some of the things that Yurian was talking to, we just did an episode recently on housing um, uh, with Eric Basmation just a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about housing is a, is a leading indicator of economic activity and how kind of the housing market trickles through into the broader economy. In terms of the Fed having to choose, uh, I would actually go back and listen to I think it's the third episode of this podcast with Grant Williams talking about the end game uh, for central banking and this kind of uh, Scylla and Crypto type situation deciding between inflation and asset bubbles and some sort of recession um, but what I want what I want to get into here uh, you know you're starting to kind of allude to there you're in some some historical analogs right um, and again to maybe reference uh, you know this Stan Druckenmiller talk very recently you know the the line that he said that stood out to me is you know he's like I've been a CIO for 45 years and have never entered a situation to which there is no historical analog or precedent kind of referring to referring to today, uh, which I thought, you know, was just a stark, you know, that's, that's something to hear from a guy like, like Stan Druckenmiller. Um, and, and I think, you know, that while history is, what's the expression, it's, it, it very often doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. You're in, I think what you're maybe, maybe one of the best guys to listen to in terms of taking lessons from history. So one of the things that's kind of breaking down on this theme of every, everything is breaking, right, at the current time is this correlation between stocks and bonds. And I saw a tweet from uh, Charlie Bellello, I think, um, you know, something to the effect of, you know, in the last, uh, you know, eight instances when the S&P was down, bonds were up. Uh, and that's broken this year because you've got the S&P down uh, something like, you know, 20%. You've got bonds uh, down 10% as well. Um, so can you kind of walk us through what we're looking at in this chart? Just this idea of the correlation between stocks and bonds, how in, uh, inflation impacts that and why we can be looking back at the 1960s as and what, what we can learn from this period of the 1960s. Yeah, so so just um, just to start the, the this conversation, I always look for analogs, not in the expectation that it's going to be a perfect repeat of history because that's not how the world works. But you know, as a student of history, a student of the market, uh, kind of the first thing to do whenever the reality on the ground is changing, which is you know 
always, but sometimes it changes a little and other times it changes a lot, um, is I, I try to find parallels to see what we can learn. So during COVID, for instance, a lot of people were drawing analogs with the, the Great Depression, you know, the 29 uh, you know, bubble and then the, the early 30s. And I quickly dismissed that um, as a parallel because during the early 30s, uh, there was a massive policy error on, on, on the part of the Fed, which was barely formed at that point, um, mm-hmm. as well as the fiscal side. So they let the banks fail. Um, the Fed was way behind the curve in terms of easing. So because we had massive deflation, uh, real rates went to like plus 10% during that 89% decline in the Dow Jones. Um, so the Fed was, in, in, in a way, was tightening significantly into, a, into an enormous systemic depression. And obviously during COVID, we had the exact opposite of that, right? We had a fall, we had a, an abrupt stop to economic growth, but you had that double-barreled fiscal monetary policy response, which was completely the opposite of what we had in the late 20s, early 30s. So so I often look to history either to say, well, there are some parallels or to say, you know, there are no parallels. Um, then I started looking at the 40s, you know, and, and, you know, Lynn Alden has done a lot of work on that as well. The financial repression era, that was really the last time where we saw this really hard, you know, this, this potent double-barreled fiscal monetary response. Um, and on top of that, we had financial repression in terms of the Fed capping rate. So I've been using the 40s as an analog as well, and I continue to do that, but now we're kind of in the late 40s where we have that inflationary hangover from the war. Uh, we had a 26% bear market, and you know maybe we're not gonna be too far from that this time. Um, so that's been another analog where some, some things are different, but other things are similar. And one of the things that's similar, of course, is even though we don't have a world war, maybe the war against COVID kind of you know, um, mobilized the same kind of policy response that we had back then. Then the other analog, as, as you are showing here on the screen, is, is the second half of the 1960s. So I'm not, you know, even though we, f- we look more like the 70s right now than the 60s, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that wasn't so clear a year ago, right, when inflation was still uh, a lot lower than it is today. But when I look at the age of the secular bull market, and that, and by the way, that's a whole topic I need to revisit because um, I don't, you know, like if there was ever things happening that makes you question the secular conviction, um, it's the stuff that's happening today. But that that's a conversation for another time. Uh, but I've looked at kind of the second half of the 60s as uh, a period in history that's very analogous to today in, in certain ways, right? So we have budding inflation. It's not so budding anymore, but back in the 60s, uh, it was starting to creep higher. Uh, and actually, so there is the five-year Kager of the CPI uh, then and now. And on the top of the panel is the is the S&P nominal. And you can see kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're in that point of the secular trend where the, the, the curve of the slope of the trend is starting to flatten out, but the trend is not over. And again, that's been my assumption. Um, but you know, you had like in 68, you had political unrest like we saw during COVID. We had social justice unrest. Um, we had uh, a speculative bubble. People were, and nobody really remembers this, but people were speculating in tech and space stocks back then. Any any comp- any stock with the name Tronics mm-hmm. in it was was you know was just bid up to ridiculous levels, no matter how good or bad their business model was. You know, kind of sounds familiar for the last in terms of the last year or so. And if we go to the other chart, uh, the other thing that happened was that the correlation between stocks and bonds flipped. So again, from the 40s through the 50s, we had a period of low inflation, or or during the 50s, I should say, uh, we had a period of low inflation, um, low interest rates, and then uh, the inflation genie kind of got out of the bottle around, you know, 67, 68 or so. Uh, the correlation of bonds to stocks, so these are bond returns to stock returns. So a negative correlation means bonds go up while stocks go down and vice versa. That correlation troughed in 1960, flipped positive in 1966. Uh, our correlation for this era 
uh, troughed in 2015 at a very steep minus 65 percent um, and is now still negative but getting a lot less negative and if you just look at the screen for the last six months you can see that uh, there's been a lot of negative months for the S&P that have been uh, matched by negative months for the uh, long government bond index or the Barclays Ag and so it's been a particularly tough time for the 60-40 model or index and the question is, will the correlation flip positive? I mean, it already has on a shorter term time frame, but on a five year time frame, it has not yet, just because it includes five years of history. But you know, it's a big question. So if, if we're in the late 60s um, and we're and we're gonna have a structural inflation paradigm, which I think is becoming rap rapidly becoming the consensus, maybe not to the extreme that the 70s were, but above the Fed's uh, target of 2%. And by the way, that 2% is the core PCE. Uh, and so you add half a percent to, the C to that to get to the CPI, which generally trends higher than the PCE. So basically the Fed's target is 2.5%. And, um, and so if we stay above that and bonds stop becoming a buffer against losses in the, on the equity side, then we need to rethink the 60-40. And, and there are ways of doing that. You can tweak the 60 side to build a more inflation-proof 60. Uh, and, and to do that is you, you swap some of the, the big growth names uh, to smaller value names. I mean, small cap value is the undisputed winner historically during uh, inflationary periods like the 40s, like the 70s. So you can kind of change the 60 around. And of course, you can change the 40 around. You have more cash, less duration, more tips, uh, maybe some high yield, which tends to have a higher spread, of course, and a lower duration than the ag. And, and then you start thinking about gold and crypto and, and other forms of hard assets. But that's kind of where we are in the 60-40. And a lot of investors may be already there uh, because the 60-40 is just the benchmark. It's a pretty narrow benchmark. Uh, but that's, I think, you know, potentially where we're at. Um, and so maybe it's a it's a regime, a, a secular regime shift in that sense. Yeah. And maybe, you know, if 60-40 is kind of what your your financial advisor puts the average retail investor in, then maybe the institutional version of that is risk parity, right? Which is the strategy that Dalio uh, kind of pioneered at, at Bridgewater. Um, I mean, that that seems to be kind of the risk, right? You know, in this new in, you know regime of secular inflation, that a lot of positioning, whether it be kind of 60-40 on the retail side or risk parity on the institutional side, is going to have to to shift. So if this correlation breaks down and actually reverses, right? What is the unwinding of that of that all kind of look like? I mean, how much turbulence should we be expecting from that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think most of the turbulence will be on the 40 side, not on the 60 side, right? I mean, obviously, we're seeing turbulence on the 60 side. And the 40 side directly impacts the 60 because of the cost of capital uh, relationship that we talked about at the beginning. But, you know, the 60 most of the time is a good store of value, right? Equities compound uh, are compounding assets. You compound the cash flows, the dividends, the gains. And so historically, equities are a proven store of value, uh, even in an inflationary period, not in a, you know, I don't want to even say hyperinflation because it's not what we have at all. But even in a, like in a period of high inflation, they're not so great because the PE gets so derated that uh, no matter how good the earnings are, no one wants to pay for them. But most of the time, the, the equity side is okay. So you can tweak it. You know, like I said, you know, the S&P is large cap growth heavy, right? The FANG stocks. So maybe you, you deviate away from that more towards the value side, the, the stuff that is a little bit more inflation protected because the FANGs and other mega cap growth stocks uh, are are very sensitive to changes in the discount rate in the DCF because they are long duration stocks where uh, you know investors are are paying a premium for a very very long stream of earnings well into the future. So obviously that the cost of capital in that DCF model, if that goes up, it disproportionately affects those stocks more so than an energy stock, which has you know of course much better pricing power. Uh, so. I think tweaking the 60 uh, towards a more inflation-proof um, you know, side, I think is relatively easy to do. It certainly would require some active management, which I think you know, obviously is fine. But if you look at the 40 side, you look at the flows over the past 15 years since the financial crisis or 14 years, you know, equities took in over the last 14 years maybe half a trillion. 
which in, in the context of a $40 trillion market cap, is not very much, right? I mean, th that doesn't uh, that doesn't include companies buying back their stock, which which was much much bigger number than that. But I'm talking about investor flows here, you know, mm -hmm. mutual funds, ETFs, etc. But on the bond side, uh, flows were about three and a half trillion dollars, and that's on a market cap of uh, I think it's 28 trillion or something. So a much much bigger number, and that money is now starting to leave, as you would imagine, right? If when yields are going up. And I think that's kind of a similar type of story as what we're seeing in risk parity. When you look at uh, what you know, when you look at the correlations of different players in the market to both the changing um, equity prices and changing bond yields, clearly risk parity was the most levered or correlated to both of those, right? Like CTAs, not so much. Obviously, equity funds are to the equity side, not to the bond side, bond funds the other way. But the 64, the, the, the risk parity uh, style uh, was really caught in the crosshairs. And, and you know, 60, the risk parity tends to have, have a levered position in bonds, right? Because they need to offset the equity risk um, by having, um, a, you know, by, by creating a, a larger bond position uh, than they would have in the cash market. And my guess is, I don't have any direct evidence of this, but my guess is over the past six months or so, that probably that's been where the greatest reset has had to be. But but the bigger question is, you know, if, if bond funds are going to see uh, an exodus of even a part of the, that three and a half trillion. And part of that will be lost just from market pricing, right? But part of it could be lost by just investors actually reversing their purchases and buying something else. Uh, then you have to wonder where they would go. Maybe they go into equities. Maybe this actually benefits the equity side and we go to a 70-30 paradigm instead of a 60-40. Who knows? Yeah. Right. Um, so I guess maybe you're in, because I, I know we're, we've got limited time here just to wrap this up. You know, What's the actionable takeaway for investors here, right? I mean, there, there have been very few segments of the market. <laughs> there are very few bright pockets of the market, right? Um, you know, I guess energy is one uh, that's been, been talked about recently because there's been structural un underinvestment there. But, you know, we even talked about, uh, you know, some of the, the traditional hedges that people talk about, right, in these sorts of times are, uh, you know, gold, right? So gold, um, you know, despite the, it being above where, where it should be, I guess, based on tips, uh, is still... You know, basically trading sideways, uh, which is honestly much better than what everything else in the market is doing. Uh, you know, we, you know, Bitcoin uh, is taking a hammering right now. Um, I think you're definitely seeing less calls about it being an inflation hedge, certainly. Um, but like, you know, if, if you had an, an, an uh, and and maybe the the greatest irony of this whole the focus on in, in an environment of secular inflation, the best thing to own is cash, right? Uh, so I guess if you just had parting parting advice for investors who are listening to the show, looking for a place of relative safety, you know, what, what, what should we be looking at here? Is it commodities? Is it pockets within the stock market? Is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? I mean, uh, what's your kind of takeaway? Yeah. So, so maybe we go to the commodity super cycle chart. So, mm -hmm. I, so if we're in a structural inflationary regime, which, you know, at this point is not a controversial statement to make, yep. um, then you want to, you want to think about your strategic allocation. So first of all, you know, both stock and bond markets are down super painful for the 60-40 paradigm, but also an opportunity to maybe rebalance, right? So if you are you have a 401k, uh, the stock market is down more than the bond market. So maybe if you haven't done anything to your portfolio, uh, you actually are now under allocated to stocks relative to bonds. So an opportunity to at some point rebalance back to your target, whether that's 60-40 or 50-50 or 70-30 or what have you. And then just, just to look under the hood about Places that are are you know that companies that have pricing power, which of course in an inflationary environment is is important. Uh, here's the commodity super cycle. So the the top panel shows the S and P relative to the CRB, which is one of the commodity indices. Um, it's not my favorite, but it has the long longest history. And the top, and the bottom panel is the ten year compound annual growth rate or CAGR of that of that ratio. And you can see of of you know, you can see that there's a, a meaningful long-term cycle. It used to be called the Kondiatiev wave. Uh, we don't really call it that uh, anymore. But you can see a cycle, a super cycle spanning several decades. And we, the rate of change was only, you know, at, at the peak of that range uh, a, a year ago. And, we're, and so it seems that there is still time in that cycle. Now, commodities are not the easiest thing to invest in. You know, you have 
uh, all kinds of roll yield issues if you're in a futures um, you know fund or ETF. Um, you know they're very volatile, so it's not you know I wouldn't I wouldn't buy too much of it. But but this is one port in the storm, if you will. I think gold, the fact that it's holding in so much more than what the the the, the models are suggesting, tells me that something is afoot. And maybe it's a future of financial repression that's driving that. And I think Bitcoin at some point will, will kind of ride, uh, ride that tide as well. And, and you had a chart of the utility sector uh, that you, uh, you went through. Um, and that's another area is just defensive equities, right? Utilities yeah. have a low beta. Uh, they're boring as hell, but they have a low beta. They have a, a very good dividend yield of three more than 3%. And you add in earnings growth to that, you get something significantly better than that. Um, and uh, they are a port in the storm when, when earnings growth, which is holding up, but clearly you know that could be another shoe to drop if if it were to drop, so that that would be an area maybe to hide in. And it's not just uh, utilities, but consumer staples, maybe even some you know some REITs or things like that. Uh, stuff that is that that is less correlated with the overall beta of the market, and that has a low beta and a higher dividend. Uh, you know, and and like there's an index called the low vol high dividend index in the S and P that. Has a yield of over five percent, I believe. So th there are there are places to hide. That doesn't mean they're not going to go down, but they they may go down less than the overall index. And after that, I think what we need is just patience. You know, this this is a difficult macro environment, um, but you know, timing the market is really really hard, right? It, it may be relatively easy to sell at the top because you see something before others do, uh, but then you have to get back in at the bottom. And we saw, for instance, during the the pandemic how quickly the market reverts itself. And I'm not yep. expecting a repeat of that, but we can see how quickly it can happen, even after the, 28, the, the 2018 decline. Uh, all those 20% of losses were recovered within a month or two. Um, so it's really, even if it's easy to get out, um, it's hard to get in on time because you could easily leave 10, 20% on the table before you even know what's going on. Um, and so, you know, market timing is is a tricky business. Even professionals like myself, I don't really do it. If I have some extra cash, maybe I start committing it when it's down at these levels. But it's a tough thing to do. So I I, I would rather tweak uh, beneath the service of the sixty forty and to make sure that I have the right building blocks, um, not only tactically or cyclically, but strategically. Uh, and I think that's that's probably the, the, the that's probably the best thing that that most of us can do in this market. So what you're saying is market timing is actually difficult. Periods <laughs> of times like this, Yurian. Uh, as always, this has been uh, you know a really really interesting conversation, um, guys. As you can see, I think Yurian, uh, in addition to being the best best dressed guy in both macro and crypto, puts together a lot of great charts, a lot of great information. Yurian, if folks want to follow you, find out more information about the work you do, what's the best way to do that? Uh, easiest way is to at Timur Fidelity on Twitter. Awesome. All right. Um, Yurian, well, thanks so much. Uh, I think we can go on speaking for another hour about this, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Um, we'll have to have you back on the show soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Yurian. Bye.